0: Hey, everybody, it's your boy, Jordan J. Adams, United Fight Alliance. Well, it's Carnivore Month here at For the Fighter and You. And to help celebrate, we're going to bring you three world-class MDs who all specialize in this nutritional protocol. Dr. Christopher Stather is a board-certified physician in family medicine and obesity medicine with expertise in nutrition and metabolic health. Following completion of medical school and residency at the University of Minnesota, he worked for three years in a full-spectrum family medicine clinic, including pediatrics, OB, and inpatient care before transitioning to full-time hospital medicine. Dr. Stather has been committed to improving the management of diabetes in the hospital setting with success in reducing glucose levels and insulin requirements for patients, often achieving dramatic results even during short hospital stays. While working as a hospitalist, he served as principal investigator on an inpatient study of the nutritional management of diabetes in the hospital setting continues to closely follow nutritional research. These efforts, with nutrition and lifestyle modifications, have renewed his enthusiasm for practicing medicine and continue to be rewarding by being able to help individuals reverse their diabetes, improve their metabolic health, and avoid the myriad complications that necessitate hospitalization. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine and is a member of the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners. He is a contributing author for the popular low-carbohydrate nutrition website, DietDoctor.com. Outside of medicine, he enjoys spending time with his wife and two daughters and some of his many interests, including music. Yes, me too. Strength training. Yes, me too. Traveling. Me too. Outdoors, backpacking, water skiing, juggling. I'm guessing that's good for the brain. Home improvement <laughs> and raising backyard chickens. Wow, what a what a bio right there! Thanks for joining us, Doctor Stather.
1: Certainly, thank you, Jordan, for uh, giving me the opportunity to meet with you.
0: And when I look at you know your background in metabolic health and metabolism and obesity, boy, your timing is good. You have created job security. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I certainly and, think so. We're we're in trouble in this country. I know. I know it's, it's so bad. It's so very bad because as I understand it, waistline is really everything, right? Visceral fat's really everything. And it's just waistline. Even my friends who are skinny, quote unquote, skinny, they've, they all have bellies. So maybe they're thin on the outside, but fat on the inside. Right, right. Yeah. Another way of saying it is skinny fat, uh, yeah, visceral
1: Yeah, Why did you get is, into uh,
0: family medicine and particularly specializing in obesity?
1: Yeah, it took a long ways to get there. Uh, so initially, family medicine appealed to me because I my vision of a doctor has always been the the black bag doctor the you know the doctor who does everything um, and and rather than being super specialized, um, I just felt that the uh, family medicine afforded me uh, all sorts of opportunities. Uh, I could transition any direction I wanted to. And uh, I really loved the whole the full spectrum of family medicine and and really enjoyed my relationships with my regular patients. Uh, so it actually it, it kind of hurt me to uh, cut off that uh, family medicine career and lose the continuity with those patients. Uh, although I've kind of uh, reinstated that with my with my new clinic venture. Uh, but then I transitioned into hospital medicine because you know, at the time, uh, physicians in family medicine were, were really becoming compartmentalized in terms of working strictly in the outpatient setting versus covering both outpatient and inpatient. It was just tedious to go to the hospital uh, when, you're, when you have a full clinic day. And uh, the writing was on the wall. I, I knew it was coming. Uh, so I uh, transitioned over to hospital medicine uh, and did, have been doing that uh, since 2009. Um, actually, still. Uh, maintain a little bit of work um, on a locum basis, temporary uh, shifts, and so on. Um, and and it was during my hospital time, uh, hospital medicine uh, years, where where I kind of realized that I, I found myself on the wrong side of healthcare. I was I was stuck in sick care, um, as you well know, and and it's just frustrating day after day. We're we're you know, kicking the proverbial can down the road uh, in terms of. Uh, we're not making any substantial difference in people's health or longevity. We're just, we're just you know, throwing some Band-Aids on them, getting them back on their feet, get them out the door, you know, only to welcome them back another you know, a few weeks later, a few months later, whatever it is. Uh, so really, we were not moving the needle on people's health uh, in, the, in conventional healthcare. Uh, and, and that became uh, really frustrating. And it was clear to me that, that patients wanted better um, uh, and, and I started, well, I had this, this, this big moment, you know, m- my road to Damascus moment was when I, uh, encountered this patient with diabetes in the hospital and I'm looking through the sugars and they're all, they're terrible, you know, 200s, 300s uh, pretty routinely. And, and, and of course the hospital standard of care is, you know, to stop their oral medications and slug them with insulin and these sliding scales of insulin. So the, the higher their glucose, the more insulin they get. And, um, and and I walked into this patient's room and after looking at his terrible glucoses and, uh, and he had just finished breakfast. And on his tray is this plate that just housed a giant Belgian waffle with syrup, had a bowl of fruit, had a, had a glass of orange juice. And, and it, something, something set me off at that moment, uh, just, just the, uh, th- the craziness of that situation. And I stormed out of that room and I called down to the cafeteria, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit angry, I'm sure. And I uh, said, so what's going on here? My patient's supposed to be on a diabetic diet. What, what is this? They have a huge Belgian waffle. Oh, well, sir, uh, they're, on the diabetic diet, they're allowed 60 grams of carbohydrates per meal. I'm like, wh- boggled my mind. Uh, I mean, here, I've been ordering this diabetic diet all the time. And it, it never stopped to think, well, what does it actually mean? And, uh, and and that's the way it is. I, I I quiz doctors all the time now, especially the residents in training. Like, hey, well, you order this diet all the time. What does it mean? Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the physicians basically have no idea what the diets mean. They just trust that. Oh, it says diabetic. That must be right. Or it says a cardiac diet. Oh, that's good for everyone, right? Heart healthy. Ooh, uh, which is which is far from the truth. And so, uh, so that set off a fire in me, and uh, and I did all sorts of research on on diet, diabetes, uh, proper management and so on. And, um, you know, that's where I, you know, dove into the research. So this was back in, uh, 2014, I believe. And at the time there was very little, uh, research out there in terms of low carb, um, but, but that's what I fell into with, uh, you know, Dr. Westman, um, Finney and volick um, discovering some of their work and, uh, and, and the rest is history for me. That just set me down on a path like, aha, this, this is the light bulb I needed. And, uh, and, and so I started incorporating some of these principles with my patients in the hospital. And, and they were, um, the, the patients were super thankful uh, you know, and actually very frustrated at the health system for, for not sharing with them the fact that, hey, there's another way of doing this. You don't have to be a slave to the insulin And and this this diet, you know, the standard dietary guidelines apply to all the dietitian advice in regards to diabetes management. It's just the same, the the same garbage everywhere you look. It's uh, it's very predictable. It very much follows the dietary guidelines. And and so, so kind of over the over the past few years, um, or or sorry, over the next next few years from that point, um, patients really responded well. And I thought, hey. How, how can I help these people once they leave the hospital? Because uh, once they leave, I'm done. There's no patient-physician relationship anymore. And yet they're going you know, to go back to their, their regular docs and get the same terrible advice that they've always been getting back on their same insulin regimens and so on. And, uh, and so that's kind of where the idea of my, my clinic uh, germinated um, and then just uh, you know finally took off. Uh, you know, a year and a half ago. And I just said, all right, this is the time I got to do this. So it uh, took, to took me a while to get here.
0: Well, I commend your bravery and swimming upstream because I imagine in 2014, and I remember, you know, back then, yeah, there was just not a lot of info mm-hmm. around it. And I know as a doctor, you're under a lot of pressure. You, know, you have a lot of eyeballs on you. Um, to follow, you know, standard operating procedure, and this is what you learned in school and this is what you apply. And it's just shocking to me, you know, as a layman that that is not offered that, that when you can get people off insulin and it's a proven model that it's just not offered and it's, and it's equally as shocking that you can reach the level of education that an MD has. I mean, I don't have to tell you the extensive amount of work, you know, to get to the level you guys get to it just brutal in to, to not know about nutrition and just not mm-hmm. know it. It's not like it's a, you know, it's not like there's malintent there. It's just not an awareness, you know, like it's just not a modality that's talked about and yeah. it's shocking. And you know, I have so many, I know it's anecdotal, but I have so many friends and relatives who have turned things around using this protocol and uh, you know, it's sitting right there. It's, it's a shame. It really is. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I like what
1: you said. I like what you said there, uh, you know, I shouldn't feel like I'm fighting um, upstream to, to do something that makes such a difference for patients. And yet, I'll tell you, I almost lost my job over, over my initiatives uh, because I was, I was pushing to you know, restrict uh, carbohydrates uh, for, for patients in the hospital. Uh, I mean, it's basic science, right? And, and yet, uh, you know, the dietitians hated me. Uh, they wouldn't even look at me in the eye. Um, after all that, and, uh, and, and it, you know, I bumped butted heads with administration, uh, and uh, it was just a terrible experience, like, uh, but, but talk to my patients, you know, they were so grateful to, to finally be told, hey, there's another way. Uh, yeah, I mean, medicine is so uh, uh, behind in terms of uh, the, the science, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing how long it takes some, some basic research to get to the front lines.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really it. it. The funding of the research, right, which is ultra expensive, which is kind of a, you know, um, high cost of participation, which some people have, have said, hey, that's, that's part of the design, right? You can, price, you can price the average person out and only really big farmer can play the game. Uh, you know, they're the only ones who can who play the game and control control the playing space. They own the field. It's it's hard to, right. you know, and when when the opposition holds the field, owns the field, and owns the yeah. referees, right? <laughs> you know, and part of the problem is
1: is the the insurance based model of healthcare uh, very much dictates how much time your doctor spends with you, mm. right? You know, so the average pa- patient physician encounter face-to-face time is only 10 point3 minutes mm. uh, which is terrible you can't accomplish anything in 10 minutes mm. uh, you know so the doctors rushed they have a they have a litany of, of checklist items to accomplish in order to properly bill you for the visit because that's ultimately all that the administrators care about did you did you generate revenue from that visit who cares about the, the patient the outcome the whatever?
0: All, the, all of that subjective stuff yeah we we want to we want to operate the black yeah <laughs> and so forget it's a business yeah like yeah they, they you like know i think it's altruistic but it's a business right so that's why your doctor is a slave to the computer that's why their face is
1: stuck in the in the computer because they're they're having to document everything to properly bill for your visit wow it's it's and, so a lot of that's it's why driven see by so the
0: doctors leaving the field right because it's oh, just yeah. like they're done. Yeah. They be, they're just going to start open their own practice and yeah. uh, try to and get and and do what they why they went to medical school in the first place heal people, right? What a concept! Yeah, you know, it's, yeah driven by the uh, government mandates on uh, electronic medical records,
1: electronic documentation, because you know, it's easier to track data. Uh, but this is why I left the insurance based model, uh, and and my practice is a direct care. Uh, practice. So I can spend as much time with my patients as I want. Uh, you know, my, my first visit with patients is 90 minutes. Uh, people wow. are blown away. You know, people keep wow. telling me I don't charge enough. Um, you know, so it's a, like doc, you just spent two hours with me. You don't charge enough. I'm like yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's,
1: that's, that's my problem.
0: <laughs> I wish you were I wish you were in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I don't and, think I don't uh, know if they'd let you do you, you know, yeah yeah they would you're an MD they would let you yeah they don't let the NDs practice here but they let the N- uh, MDs okay out. yeah yeah let's yeah. talk science because I know a lot of people yeah. you know the the real important element that I don't want to lose track is is application right implementation because uh, a lot of people who are listening already are somewhat familiar with the science and somewhat familiar with how effective it is um, but it's the implementation. Um, so why don't we touch upon sugar in general, processed foods, carbohydrates, and tell me if this is an accurate statement? Pretty much all ailments are starting to look like they're coming from blood sugar, like you know, diabetes, um, uh, dementia, heart disease, cancer seem to have some sort of correlation with blood sugar and inflammation. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Yes. yes. I completely agree. Uh, I look at, I take a kind of a reductionist perspective on, on healthcare medicine in general. And, and what I mean is I I look, I kind of step back and look at all these different entities, the, the common conditions that we're encountering. And, you know, it's estimated probably about 80% of, of all the things that we're doing in healthcare are related to insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and, and that's that's directly related to the to the glucose uh, and processed foods uh, effects uh, on our bodies. And so, you know, it, it, quite very simply, insulin resistance. Um, you, know, you know, your body uses insulin to direct where energy goes to protect against elevated glucose. And so, you pummel yourself with with carbs, break down the glucose. Your body uses insulin to shuttle that glucose somewhere else. It can't stay in the blood. It's causing Causing harm everywhere, uh, and so so if you know for people who are able, you know you, you sock that energy sock excess energy away as fat. Uh, so high insulin is, and high glucose equals fat storage. Uh, you know one what, what of the things I hammer home with my my patients is you know uh, high insulin turns off fat burning, and so you you have to you have to realize that anytime you spike your insulin. You've just turned off fat burning. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Think about think about you know primitive time, where, like hey, you, you don't know when you're getting your next meal, you're, you're you're running on your fat stores, all of a sudden you come across this field of berries or potatoes or whatever, some source of carbs. You know, the, the gatherers struck it rich. And you consume a bunch of these, drive up your glucose. Now you get now you get this insulin spike. Well, your body's sending a signal saying, hey, stop burning the fat. You gotta hold on to that for, for a critical period. Like we might, we don't know when a famine's coming. Don't burn the fat right now. We got, we got the sugar. And so, you know, you know, you hear this typical advice of, of, uh, eat several small meals a day, eat every couple hours. So the, you know, notorious, f- uh, piece of advice from dietitians. but what you're doing is you're spiking your insulin every, every couple hours. You're never going to burn the fat because every time you spike it, boom, turns off fat burning. Or, you know, most people actually are uh, maintaining a, a relatively high insulin level all the time. That's, that's kind of the state of affairs uh, in this country uh, where, where their insulin levels are, are running high all the time. Uh, and so they never, they never start, uh, or they, sorry, they never activate fat burning. They're always suppressing fat burning because of that high insulin level. Uh, you know, all, all these chronic conditions, The the ones you named, um, as well as, uh, you know, know, cancers, um, inflammatory conditions, a whole myriad of them, are associated with high insulin levels. And so ultimately, I look at the big, looking at the big picture, I look at decreasing your insulin as a primary goal of metabolic health.
0: And um, I heard one of the other big indicators um, that you are in this chronic insulin resistance, uh, state of affairs is when the visceral fat actually starts accumulating. Uh, can you speak directly to visceral fat and why it's the more dangerous kind of fat compared to subcutaneous fat?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Visceral fat is definitely, uh, associated with all these major conditions as well. Um, I don't know the exact mechanism for what makes visceral fat more uh, damaging, more more uh, inflammatory, and so on. Uh, but what it, it appears that subcutaneous fat buffers against disease, whereas visceral fat contributes to disease. And so, so you know, like I mentioned, the, the people who are who have high insulin levels um, are able to store. Well, if they're if they're good fat stores, uh, they can store the excess energy as fat rather than that excess energy staying in circulation and causing the glucose to be high. So in a way, the the, the fat is a buffer against diabetes. And, and this gets into this concept of personal fat threshold. You know why, why do I have seven hundred to eight hundred pound patients in the hospital who have perfect blood work, not diabetic, their lipids look great, the A one C is perfect. Uh, And then I have, you know, somebody with a BMI of 25, 27, uh, or or you look at, uh, uh, you know, Asian populations now, uh, where they've got the skinny fat uh, uh, issues and and diabetes is raging there, you know, or this this skinny person with diabetes type two, uh, and yet sumo wrestler, the 800 pound patient, they don't have any any disruption in their, in their glucose, uh, tolerance. And it's because they're, they're very efficient fat storers. They can
0: sock away all that energy as fat and it takes it out of circulation. So are you saying that the sumo wrestlers are able to store that fat as sub Q fat and therefore not dangerous visceral fat? Yeah, more so
1: than the average bear. Uh, they can, they can pack on a lot of that subcutaneous fat. Now, they probably have visceral fat, certainly, Um, and and, and a lot of these, you know, there's this concept of metabolically healthy obese, so people who are obese with normal metabolic markers, so their glucose looks fine, their A1C looks fine, and heck, even their fasting insulin looks fine sometimes. So they're considered metabolically healthy, um, even though they don't have the phenotype to match it. So their outward appearance doesn't look metabolically healthy. Problem is uh, that probably catches up to them eventually. So years down the road, things are going to change. That's not going to stay the case. Uh, But yeah, there's just this different threshold for how much fat can your body store before uh, you develop diabetes. Uh, So your, your body can only do so much to buffer against diabetes by storing fat uh, until it hits your threshold. And that's probably determined a lot by genetics. You know, well, you, know you see the uh, Asian populations, like I referenced, they get diabetes at a very very low BMI relative to uh, a lot of Americans. Um, you know, and also the uh, regarding the visceral fat uh, issue, you know the visceral fat is surrounding the organs, uh, so it's enmeshed in the in the, the central organs and and one place we commonly see it is the liver. So you see fatty liver disease. You may hear NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's Just another symptom of insulin resistance, uh, just like obesity, just like diabetes. Just just another symptom, just another manifestation. Of course, we treat it like a totally different entity, uh, which doesn't make sense because it's all it's all really the same disease as I was. Talking about earlier, so you know, eighty percent of all this stuff is it's, it's it's the same disease, and but with the with the fatty liver infiltration, um, we know that, that fat in the liver drives insulin resistance, and um, has a has a particular uh, propensity to do so, um, and and that's so so that that's one mechanism by which visceral fat can can worsen. Uh, the insulin resistance. So even even a skinny person can have a fatty liver and that'll drive insulin resistance. And, and some people, s- some uh, scientists, physicians, et cetera, uh, basically equate the liver health with metabolic health, that it's that important t- uh, to our overall uh,
0: metabolic health. It's almost like after a lifetime of abuse, um, the organ just says, I'm done cleaning up your mess. You, you've got to, you, you can't do this anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Quit pummeling me with those simple sugars. Yeah. Yeah. you can only do so much with them.
0: I want to go to my own stuff, but I want to, I want to visit, um, the important, um, ways of, of handling this and, and why you, you know, you feel, that this is the best way forward. You've been a, a vocal proponent of the low-carb nutritional lifestyle. Um, there's ways to do that. Um, are you a hardcore carnivore where um, you're not doing any veggies or, or any fruit at all? Or are you a, a more of a moderation Mediterranean type of um, practitioner? Where do you fall on the spectrum? Because usually you, you know, there's, there's a wide spectrum out there for sure i go through phases uh for the most part
1: (laughs) for the most part i am 90 plus percent carnivore uh and and or or you know a lot of people call it animal based so i do uh very meat heavy predominantly beef that's that's 95 percent of the time it's beef a little bit of chicken a little bit of pork a little bit miscellaneous you know ham etc but uh Um i i incorporate dairy i tolerate dairy very well uh grew up in minnesota
0: that's the law it's the law you guys have to sign a contract yeah that's right cheese cheese and dairy and yeah 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 although cheese is a little Uh, more wisconsin than but yeah yeah fair (laughs) And so, uh,
1: so I tolerate dairy very well. Uh, I keep that in my diet. So a lot of sour cream, cheese, uh, even some milk. I, I really backed away from milk, but now that I have young kids that are drinking milk, I'm like, ah, oh, can't resist it. <laughs> um, but uh, but no sign of lactose intolerance, so that's good. Um, I do uh, so basically. I would I would eat um, strictly animal based um, if it weren't for having young children. So, four and a five year old and uh, and so obviously, we you know, we we'll let them be kids as well. they're not they're not a strict low carb diet, <laughs> but uh, minimizing processed foods, uh, so so I'm really I, I really don't uh, dig into processed foods um, at all. that's that's a that's an exception. Um, but uh, but yeah, so ninety plus percent
0: carnivore plus dairy plus eggs, which, when you hear that, it's it's the polar opposite of what we have been told mm-hmm. uh, since Ansel Keys and H.R. Kellogg uh, worked the system to their benefit and made it all grains. And um, and it's still psychologically I speak for me because I've been trying on and off I, I you know the last couple of years trying on and off keto, which is really hard for me and trying for the last two months on and off on the carnivore. Um, I've definitely had all of the positive stuff doing the carnivore, clear headed body aches, gone popping out of bed early, not feeling tired at all, feeling just clear headed, feeling flexible, like just like, kind of like, like when I was 12 and like you can move in any direction, you feel like Gumby and nothing hurts. So those are all amazing positives for me. One of the areas that two, two big challenges. I don't know if anyone else is facing this, but one is late at night, wanting, wanting some carbs, wanting something sweet, cold. I like to freeze my fruit, you know, freeze bananas and blueberries. And I'll even spray uh, lemon juice on them. Cause then when I, I know, so I take the peels off the bananas, I'll spray the bananas with lemon juice. So they don't Brown for that first two hours that they're trying to freeze. And then it's a nice sweet, sour play, which is nice but it's an addiction it like i even when i tell myself i don't want to do it i will find myself eating that cold sweet uh late at night um and and breaking that carnivore type of protocol or breaking a fast mm-hmm. um so that's kind of like challenge number one and then challenge number two you always hear people who are in carnivore you're gonna lose weight dude it's great you're gonna lose weight and they're kind of like saying i promise you you lose weight And i'm like for, for some of us, that's not a positive. Like not all of us want to lose weight. I want to, I want to maintain my lean body mass. If anything, I want to grow it. I want to get bigger and stronger. I don't want to feel tired in the gym. And I noticed that that that's like the 800 pound gorilla in the room, if you will, is bonking in the gym on carnivore. And they, they keep acting like you're going to be great. It's meat. You're going to be strong. No, man, I'm, I get flat. I get flat on carnivore. I, and I'm flat in the gym and I'm losing size. And it seems counterproductive because strength is health. Mm-hmm. So it's confusing for us. We're confused. Can you yeah. speak to yes. the positives, are there? That, like the testimonials, thousands of testimonials. Jordan Peterson just on Rogan. I don't know if you saw that. He just did a whole soliloquy. I have it. Mm-hmm. I have it on my notes somewhere here. I'll, I'll say all the stuff it fixed for him, like ten things. Yeah, those are all there. They're real. I know they're anecdotal, but when you get to ten thousand people all saying the same thing, it starts becoming kind of obvious. So the benefits, but what about the negatives? You know, what about fiber? What about phytonutrients? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there. I've, I've been. What about bright colors? Bright colors to fight cancer all of the reds and purples and greens in my fruit and veggies. Sorry, I'm hitting you with a lot of stuff, doctor. I, I just no, no frustrated in Seattle. I'm signing this note, frustrated in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh boy. All right. Um, let's start with the, uh, the nighttime sugar cravings. Um, I, I was a sugar junkie. I, uh, I mean, as a kid, you know, I grew up on, kool-aid lemonade frosting i mean heck i was we used to sneak frosting out of the fridge and scoop it out by the finger and god man i was i was a sugar addict lived on regular soda um i, I was never a coffee person i i survived med school with mountain dew that's that was
0: that was my crutch
1: <laughs> wow. college yeah college med school residency i was a mountain dew junkie
0: wow
1: yeah yeah and, uh, uh, I can, t- I can tell you the day I quit it uh, and, I, and I still wow. have, I, I still have in my, my cabinet, um, to tell you how, how meaningful this was, what did I label it? What would have been the next can? Wow! <laughs> yeah. wow. I, I cut it off cold Turkey and, uh, and, and, and have that
0: trophy. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, yeah. that really so, speaks to how much of a moment that was for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean,
1: it's so bad. I I went to Haiti for uh, three and a half weeks when I was in med school. And uh, I was like, what am I going to do? They don't have Mountain Dew in Haiti, do they? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to be able to go to the the local supermarket and uh, pick up my Mountain Dew. And so I packed it. (laughs) I packed a case of Mountain Dew. Packed Dude. Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. You
0: know.
1: So, um, just to give you an idea, uh, I beat it. I beat the sugar cravings, and uh, uh, yeah, the, the the first few weeks are difficult. Um, can't lie, uh, but what what got me through it um, was was having uh, some healthy go tos. You know, so so like, all right, if I have a craving, I'm not going to reach for the for the sugar. I'm going to have the nuts, the cheese, uh, you know, something else, the beef jerky, whatever. Doesn't have to be perfect food, um, but, but it was something to get me through that phase. Um, I'm going to drink a ton of water, a bunch of, bunch of ice water, you know, whatever it takes to satisfy my, my or quench my thirst. Um, because you know that's one thing. Is uh, speaking of cravings, is sometimes thirst is misinterpreted uh, as hunger, um, and and so so number one is is address the potential thirst. So so drink a drink a glass of water or two, uh, and then and then sit with where you are. You know, stop and 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 sit and feel. Am I really hungry? Do I really need the sugar? Am I really going to give in to this craving, and how am I going to feel about it when I do? And and, you s- and start analyzing, like, all right, here are the reasons why I know I should not indulge in this craving. Here's the potential consequences, and so just creating this mental list of pluses, minuses, and um, and, and and kind of you know grasping the um, the the gravity of of this decision day in and day out, if I keep indulging in this craving, what's going to happen? Things I don't want. Your health is going to go down the toilet. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the a strategy that helped me through a lot of it. Uh, and, and even just um, like, if, if you're getting cravings at night, you know, make sure you're eating enough at, at dinner or in the afternoon, whatever. Um, so you're not getting that hunger in the evening. It's like, Hey, I just ate my fill. Um, I don't, I don't need to reach for another food item, another snack, um, cause I, I ate my fill. You know, it's kind of like this, this, uh, this idea of novelty in our diets, you know, a picture, um, uh, picture Thanksgiving dinner. You, you eat your fill, right? You get your, your turkey, your potatoes, your whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the end of your meal, you're like, oh man, <laughs> can't eat another bite. Good dinner, Mom. Five minutes later, uh, Mom comes out with the pumpkin pie. Who wants pumpkin pie? Oh, oh." (laughs) right now you have room for it. (laughs) And and that's because our brains are wired to love and crave the uh, the treats. Uh, But there's no way you could put another bite of turkey down your throat. Uh, But hey, open up for some pumpkin pie. Or ice cream, or whatever it is. So that novelty is is a problem, and and this is how, uh, I mean, you know, look at look at buffet lines too. Uh, you know, you you gorge on all this stuff, and then oh, there's the desserts, and look at all the options I have. Uh, irresistible, to our primitive brains. Uh, so, 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 you know, using some discipline don't don't have snacks in your house number one if they're not there make it it's too hard to get to them you're not you're not going to reach for them um and then uh you know those other strategies i mentioned the drinking water and making sure you're you're filled to to satiety uh etc that's kind of my thought on nighttime sugar cravings um the next thing you mentioned you don't want to lose weight yeah, so carnivore is excellent for weight loss. drives the drives your glucose down, drives your insulin down. Finally, allows you your fat burning to occur. Uh, you know, one strategy is just increasing fat intake. Um, you know, borders on on the whole keto uh, diet. Um, speaking of, I hate the word keto. It just sounds like a fat diet, uh, and and there's nothing fat about ketogenic diets. It's 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 been it's in our our ancestors for millennia ate a diet that would be considered ketogenic, but now we call it keto and everybody's chasing their ketones and, and drinking their fat bombs every morning. Um, it's just, it's turned into something just cultish. Um, so I really hate the term, but, um, but it is what it is. People know what you mean when you say it. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I think, uh, I think increasing, uh, fat intake is, is just one easy strategy to, uh, avoid losing too much weight. Uh, you know, ideally with with weight training and enough proteins, you're going to put on some muscle mass. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's very easy to uh, to find yourself losing weight on a strict carnivore diet. So it's that can be tricky. Uh,
0: go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say one of the kind of fallbacks that I've used for that exact trickiness that you're referencing. Cause it is very tricky. Um, even when I'm upping my protein, you know, I'm an ectomorph. You go to Wikipedia and you, you look up ectomorph, you'll see my picture there. Yeah. I burn calories. So it's super tricky. So I've been pulsing the last two weeks. I've been pulsing my, my carbs. So I'll do a nice two days of clean mm-hmm. carnivore. Um, and I'll start getting those nice benefits. And then when I start feeling that almost it's a weird feeling, it's, it's hard to describe. It's like, um, I man, part of it, I guess the words detox, right? You get a little sweaty, a little bit nauseous, I almost feel catabolic. I almost feel like my body is, this is the psychological one for me to get over. I feel like my body is cannibalizing my lean body mass. Hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's just a, the detox and maybe that's just a misread on my part, but it really feels like I'm getting weak. And instead of eating fat or sugar or glycogen or anything, it's eating my muscle. Um, could there be any accuracy to that? Could it be a catabolic? It, it, at least during the transition, when does it not become catabolic? If it is,
1: yeah, it, it shouldn't be a problem if you're if you're consuming enough energy with proteins fats etc your body shouldn't be sacrificing muscle um, that's just contrary to your, your your body's goal um so hard to say what what's happening there exactly uh you know especially with you know doing some weight training and reinforcing the need to maintain that muscle because muscle is it's very expensive to maintain you know your your body will sacrifice it if needed but uh, but if you're if you're sending a consistent signal, hey, you're important. Um, oh, and by the way, I, you you failed me today in the uh, uh, in the gym. You better get stronger for tomorrow. Uh, you know, consistently sending those messages to your muscles, uh, you shouldn't be breaking them down.
0: That's good to know. That's really good to know. So it's probably more psychological. And I heard something along those lines that I really uh, really stuck with me. Uh, someone told me to work my legs more Um, classic classic Mm -hmm. American thing, working upper body and not working your legs (laughs) enough. Uh, They said, work, you know, the big muscle groups, you know, the quads, the glutes. um, And that's literally telling your body, Oh, you still, you still need to catch deer. All right. Here's some more growth hormone. Here's some more anti-aging hormones. Um, And I also, along those lines, I also heard that there are correlations between, uh, body mass index, lean body mass to fat ratio, in survivability in the hospital. Mm. When I right. heard that, I'm like, "Wow, I can't a I can't believe they've done those types of studies." Oh yeah. And b it's fascinating. The more muscle you have, you've increased your odds of walking out of that hospital alive. That's yeah. wild.
1: Yeah, I I came across one of those studies. Um, I, I did a presentation on immune health in the uh, COVID times. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Muscle mass was, was, uh, was critical as well as strength uh, in terms of survival.
0: Cause you can have these strong dudes, right. Who aren't necessarily big. They might not be big muscle mass guys, but they're climbers, right. You're on the Pacific Northwest. They're climbers, Mm -hmm. they're Mm -hmm. gymnasts and they weigh 148 pounds and they are strong, uh, you know, as a gorilla. Um, yeah. And is that because they have, is that because of lean body, no marbling, lean body mass density? Because I know a lot of puffy guys who come into the yeah, gym, yeah. they weigh 260 and they're puffy and thick and they bench 225. They put 245s on each side and they're slamming the weight like hey, everybody look at me and they're grunting groaning, but they weigh 265. So they're not even doing mm-hmm. a push up. The the weights two twenty five right <laughs> you don't get to scream I don't care that it's two twenty five you weigh two sixty five you don't get to scream when you're when you're slamming those weights you're yeah, not I even mean? doing yeah. a push up yeah you know this goes into
1: that whole uh, never ending debate about how many reps is ideal for hypertrophy or strength or whatever mm-hmm. what are your goals mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like you, uh, you look at some some bodybuilders and grant they're strong right but not as strong as you'd expect for their mass, and uh, it just it's just the way they've trained. They're they're right. pushing the hy- the hypertrophy uh, algorithm, whereas rather than where, the strength algorithm. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the, the the rock climber is just going for brute strength, and it, it behooves them to stay small. So they're they're not they're not pushing the the twelve to fifteen rep
0: ranges to to get that pump. We're getting they're some going, people writing in here, doctor um i want to visit vitamin k2 i want to visit coronary artery calcium in hdl ldl we'll visit that in a bit but let's get to some of these people in case they need to scoot brian from tampa writes in do you mean to tell me that for hundreds of thousands of years across almost every part of the globe humans have been getting it wrong by eating vegetables all right, there you go, dog. There's your first one. A, f- a shot across the bow. Sorry that it was on that angle. I'll, f- I'll, I'll find a good one. There's plenty of good ones, too.
1: Yeah, so vegetables. You know, one thing to keep in mind is vegetables have changed an incredible amount over the last thousands of years, whatever the timeline. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I saw one schematic of, you know, look at all these different uh, vegetables that derived from the, the mustard plant you know th- basically no no fruit, no vegetable whatever or no no actual edible <laughs> part to it and then we've got broccoli, we've got <laughs> cauliflower we've got all these other vegetables that derived from from the same plant um, but you know it's, it's the same thing with fruits you know that uh, they've been they've been genetically modified over time preferentially, uh farms to create giant fruit sweeter and bigger fruits uh i mean bananas used to be just a couple inches uh now they're you know six inch carb bombs you know you have 30 to 40 grams of carbs per banana uh everybody thinks they're so healthy but
0: man and i eat so many of them oh that's yeah oh my gosh i'm so bad (laughs) anyway sorry i didn't interrupt keep yeah no no, that's all good um so I you know i don't I don't think
1: vegetables are necessarily bad. I you know, I, I don't think carnivore is right for everyone. A strict carnivore diet is is the right thing for everyone. You do what you can tolerate. I look at carnivore as as a valuable tool. It's one of the many tools at my disposal. You know uh, if you're trying to achieve uh, insulin sensitivity, you know reverse diabetes, lose weight, that's a great tool. Do you have to avoid vegetables? No, no, not at all. Um, you, you you can do the ninety percent carb, the eighty, sorry, ninety percent carnivore, eighty percent carnivore, however you want to you want to do it. There's no rules. Uh, you know, we get hung up on all these tribes that that preach, you know, oh, you have to be strict carnivore to be part of our group. Don't you dare ask a question in, involving coffee or <laughs> vegetables. You know, come on. <laughs> do what your body tolerates, do what works, uh, you know, pay attention to the, to your body, listen to feedback from, you know, how your, how your body tolerates these things. I think, I think that's where uh, what people should be focused on, not, not being part of the strict tribe.
0: Well said doctor. Well said. Uh, anonymous writes in from Lando lakes. Can the doctor explain why there are other doctors who discuss the exact same bodily functions and processing of foods and nutrients, but come to what is seemingly the exact opposite conclusion as far as which foods are beneficial and which foods are harmful and how the body processes the different food types and nutrients? Why is there so much room for different interpretations? Shouldn't this be mechanically understood and documented and generally standard as far as how the human body processes each type of food and nutrient type sounds like an engineer but i i'll tell you (laughs) what i actually i'm i'm with this person because you see Uh like you got one you got a whole group of doctors prestigious as all get out all mds talking about how important it is to eat meat only. And then you get a whole group of doctors, prestigious as all get out, all MDs. These were all heavy hitters on both sides saying, stay away from red meat. If there's one food you mm-hmm. avoid, it's red meat. How could there be such polar opposition?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an excellent question. Uh, and I'll tell you, You know, I, I was trained in a very conventional allopathic medical school with the standard two and a half hours of nutrition lectures. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, we chose to skip. Uh, when, when we were looking for a skip day to go up, hit the slopes, uh, it was the it was the nutrition day that we skipped. Yeah, it was, it was so predict- oh,
0: my gosh. Oh, that's too I, funny.
1: It, it was so predictable. You know, we, we we saw the notes. We knew it was like, oh, oh, it's the dietary guidelines. Saturated fat's bad and fiber's good and here's why you eat your fruits and veggies. I mean, come on i don't i don't need to sit through that i've i've heard that a million times already. Ah. Um, you know it's just so predictable it was painful. um i mean it's just, it's just like like dietitians these days they're if they're in the system they must preach the dietary guidelines they have no wiggle room. so the only dietitians that stray from that are the ones that have gone rogue. uh you know when it comes to doctors you know i um i i was again i was the conventional trained doc um and, f- and for a while I, I I believed all that I was t- taught right I mean I just spent six figures on an education this this has to be state of the art modern the best of the best right I just went into depth for for all of this it has to be good information uh, lost lost all my I spent my 20s in libraries and my head in a book uh, of course this information is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> And then I had some some uh, you know mini epiphanies along the way, uh, and and started uh, uh, you know even even before 2014 whatever it was when I had my my uh, that moment in the hospital, I, I kind of learned about low carb and um, and and how bodybuilders use use uh, diets t- uh, to cut fat and 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 started incorporating some of those things and and uh, uh, y- the science is there. Uh, the problem is the, the pressures from the establishment of, of healthcare make it so difficult for a physician to stray uh, anywhere away from the, the mainstream approach. So you risk being called out by your peers. You, you risk being subject to uh, you know potentially liability, malpractice no issues because it's not the quote unquote standard of care. To tell somebody to to go carnivore uh, when they have uh, coronary artery disease, um, you'll never find a cardiologist. That's well, there's a couple, I guess, <laughs> but chances are you're not going to find a cardiologist to say, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's that's a standard of care." Well, no, it's not. Uh, and so, so when you when you breach the standard of care in healthcare, um, and there's a bad outcome, you're you're subject to to, to litigation.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so, so, so unless somebody, unless a physician is really well-read and confident on, on a particular dietary approach, that's not mainstream, um, yeah, the, they're not going to bother and they don't, they don't have the time. I, you know, Again, the, the pressures in healthcare to uh, make it such that, you know, primary doctors and, uh, and, and specialists all alike, um, they don't have the time to, to chase down these um these issues you got you really have to make a dedicated effort to to read on your own do the research on your own uh because no one's going to help you with it um you know part, part of the problem too is you know how you interpret studies um so so for one you know a lot of the the studies that that trash meat that 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 the the vegan the vegetarian side uses to support their claims um, our epidemiological studies, you know as as everyone knows from eighth grade science, correlation does not imply causation. Yet, we're still hung up on this. Um, and And a lot of them um, are use food frequency questionnaires for one. I don't know if you're familiar with those, they they basically ask you to write, you know, check a box, how frequently did you eat processed meats? How frequently in the last six months did you eat bacon? Yeah, you know, uh, and and so on through all sorts of of ingredients. Well, come on, how how can you possibly distill down on paper what what your diet has looked like for the last three months, six months, whatever? Most people don't know what they ate two days ago, let alone last week or beyond. Uh, so, so anytime I see a study with food frequency questionnaires, I, I, I I'm not I'm not reading it with a with an open mind, in terms of, like, oh, this this might be a useful piece of data. No, no, it's a garbage study. Uh, that's not reliable data. Garbage in, garbage out. Um, nutrition nutrition research suffers from from some major issues in terms of um, randomization, uh, in implementing interventional trials, uh, controlling what the subjects do. You know, if you want to get a solid nutritional study done you got to do a uh, uh a metabolic ward you gotta, you gotta put them in a in a facility and monitor every calorie that goes in them monitor their activity make sure they're not uh indulging uh, behind your back uh those are the that's where you get quality data it's it's, it's basically inhumane unless you have some <laughs> some volunteers for that but, but the, those studies just aren't done and, and the problem is we'll, we'll probably never get the the highest quality studies that we really desire in the nutrition world because they're just not possible uh, and so 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 largely it's you know how how do physicians look at research how critical are they reviewing it you know yeah I, I you know some of my colleagues may look at that study that has a food frequency questionnaire and oh this is correlated with that oh gosh that's that that could be uh you know they, they suddenly turned it into a cause effect interpretation, whereas I look at it and say garbage, next study uh, I'm not looking at it uh, it's, it's a food frequency questionnaire I don't, I don't I don't put any stock in those if that's what you use to 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 put to put your study together, it's a low quality study um, and and you know that's that's where the big uh that's that's where all these studies come uh, attacking red meat. Uh, and, but when you do a, and there are a couple, there are a couple randomized controlled trials. Um, when you look at, you know, fat intake, for example, uh, high fat versus high carb, um, you, you do not see harm for fat. Um, some of those things uh, disappear when you do a quality study.
0: You know, I think... Um for just about everybody uh, that they should do their own testing. Right. Like um, given the fact that there's some shaky studies out there and some questionable um, incentives and questionable intentions, um, there's not a lot of money that could be made in teaching people how to eat right. If anything, you can lose money that way. Um, You know, they're not buying the expensive pills anymore. Um, And frankly, you're helping them get out of the hospital three days earlier. Um, So there's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I hate to be someone who, you know, questions someone's motives, but, you know, there's a lot of incentive, financial incentive for keeping things the way they are. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: um, so you almost have to do your own testing. If people can get to the point and it's just eating right, changing your eating and seeing like I did enough carnivore. And felt the difference to know. Okay, boom! All of these anecdotal stories I'm hearing from hundreds. I mean, again, well, I'll, I'll well, let me see. I can pull up the Jordan Peterson because his mm-hmm. his were even more impressive than mine. Let's see if I can find. Him. Yeah. So Jordan Peterson was suffering from depression, snoring, gum disease, gastric reflux disorder, psoriasis, um, had bad mood regulation, eye floaters eye floaters um bad appetite um uh, blood dysregulation so he said when he went carnivore and he does not cheat he's 100% carnivore does not cheat all of those things fixed no anxiety no depression yeah. all gone no psoriasis went away leg numbness went away his weight went from 212 to 162 and you know for someone for for him he loves it He said, you know, he can see his stomach muscles now and all good things. I felt probably 60% of that, you know, the um, good mood, alertness, popping out of bed, just not needing as much sleep, feeling good, feeling highly competent, feeling flexible. All those things are, you know, now I know like what you guys are saying, at least the benefits are there, right? Like Mm -hmm. who knows long-term, I don't know if there's any long-term studies done, but I I'm, you know, people can believe me or not believe me. It's anecdotal. I know, but I'm telling you, this is what it fixed that period. Yeah. That's what it fixed for me. And there's thousands of people like, you know, the low carb movement's huge and people mm-hmm. are like passionate about this because it saved their lives. So right. that's kind of, I hope that in some ways that answers our person from uh, Lando lakes, wondering how there could be two such polar, what is it though about the vegetarian stuff that works? I heard, hey, they are getting off, they are getting mm-hmm. off uh, you know, uh processed foods, they're getting off yeah. Mountain Dew, right? They're getting off Mountain Dew. Uh, <laughs> you know, they they're so they're gonna have some benefits, but that those benefits aren't necessarily related to not eating meat, not eating animals. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I uh I even acknowledge um. You know, especially when I'm talking to patients in the hospital with diabetes, I'll, um, I'll explain to them, "Hey, here's what's going on with, with carbohydrates. Here's why. Here's why they're they're bad in the setting of insulin resistance, diabetes, whatever it is." And so I'll, I'll tell them, "Hey, there's two approaches to this. One, you can go extremely low fat, i.e., a plant-based, whole food diet, whatever you want to call it, vegan, vegetarian, etc. You can go incredibly low fat." Um, or you can go, um, high fat, low carb. Okay. So, so there's <laughs> kind of the polar opposites and, and, and in regard, regards to protein, um, most well, people in general, and this has been supported by studies. If you tell them to eat low protein, high protein, they all kind of come back towards roughly 20, 25%, whatever, somewhere in there. Uh, so that, so protein remains relatively constant in the long run. Uh, there can be short, short-term changes, but it, but it comes back. So, so it's really just, you're, you're moving the lever on pro. uh, sorry, fat or carbs. So either one of those approaches can be beneficial. And what, it, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're just decreasing the amount of energy you're putting into the body. And so, so you can look at carbs and fat as, as just an energy source, fat being much more dense. You know, um, nine calories per gram versus carbs, four calories per gram. So you can reverse diabetes with a very low fat uh, diet, which ends up being relatively high carb. Couple problems, and, and and again, that's just because you're you're decreasing the energy intake into your body. Uh, so hopefully you're eating a lot of you know non starchy uh, vegetables. That's certainly an important part of that, uh, but some problems with that. Number one, not very sustainable. Nobody ever opts for that option when I talk to them about it. I'm like, no way doc, sounds terrible, can't do it. Uh, and number two, uh, there's there's an issue of uh, nutrient deficiencies. So are you getting your micronutrients? You know, I mean, mo- most, most commonly known deficiency with, with a plant-based diet is B12 deficiency, uh, but there's others. Uh, and and then there's the issue of bioavailability. When you you consume these plant foods, how much of the nutrients are are being absorbed? Are you are you familiar with the uh, the famous zinc study? No oysters. No. Oh man. So there's the study with uh, with oysters. Uh, and they so there's three groups. One a group ate uh, uh, oysters alone. Oh, and and all of the, the zinc was radio-labeled in this, so they could track how much was absorbed. So one, one group was oysters alone. Another group was oysters with beans. And the third group was oysters with corn tortillas. So by far, the best absorption was with the, the group that ate oysters by by themselves. And less than half of the zinc was absorbed uh, in people who ate the oysters with beans and virtually none of the zinc was absorbed when they ate the same amount of oysters mind you with corn tortillas wow yeah so speaking to the power of anti-nutrients phytates you know these things that are binding nutrients uh with in plants so so you know consuming a a nutrient-dense food could be sabotaged by what you're eating it with uh it's a really cool study uh you know um one it's one of those things that that convinced me like hey w- w- what's so bad about carnivore um it's it's a it's a the most bioavailable nutrients uh and, uh, and so that that's one big issue with with doing a plant-based diet of vegan vegetarian etc are
0: there um, any vitamins yeah, I- or or minerals that are missing if you're just eating meat, um, you, you know you hear about all of the vitamin-packed uh, nutrition in vegetables and fruits. Especially, you hear a lot about the phytonutrients. You know the colors mm. that plants and fruits develop to pre- protect themselves from radiation. Um, and then you get to kind of hijack all that proje- uh, protection. Are you missing any of that when you eat only the meat? You know, the big criticism has been uh, vitamin C.
1: That's that's not prevalent in meat. Uh, but let's let's clarify that it's not present in muscle meat. But there's actually quite a bit of vitamin C in uh, beef liver, for example. Uh, you can get it, and, and it is present in a trace amount in in muscle meat. It's just just not not significant amounts. Um, but one of the issues with you know, well, well the you know people fear like oh well if you're eating carnivore you're not getting vitamin C you're going to develop scurvy etc. Well, there's an interesting Issue at hand here, which is that the vitamin C molecule looks almost identical to the glucose molecule, and so there's a lot of uh, it's believed that there's a lot of confusion in your body about um, processing uh, vitamin C uh, when when there's a lot of glucose present, and so so you may lose you may need a higher amount of vitamin C when you're eating a carb heavy diet when you're when you're very low on carbs, however. You can get by with a much lower amount of vitamin C, because there's less of that confusion about metabolizing the right molecule, because again, they're, they're, they're nearly identical. Uh, so so there's, there's some confusion in, in processing. Uh, so, so vitamin C uh, has, has not been identif- vitamin C deficiency has not been identified as an issue among long-term carnivores. None of them are developing scurvy, and, and even ones that, that uh, don't uh, consume organ meats like liver. Uh, it just doesn't pan out. Uh, you know, the other nutrient of concern, fiber. Um, there's so much to say about fiber. Um, you know, there's there's really not any great evidence that says fiber is is important, that it's critical. And in fact, you know, there's a study uh, of uh, people with chronic uh, lower GI complaints. So pain, bleeding, uh, incomplete, incomplete emptying, uh, you know, all these, all these lower GI complaints. And they, they, they made them all go to a zero, sorry, zero fiber diet. And then after a period of time, they said, all right, you can introduce fiber again, up to a level of comfort. And uh, so, so it was, it was kind of distributed. There were some that went to high fiber some that went to low fiber and and actually most of them stayed at zero fiber because they were doing so great, and uh, they reanalyzed. Well, you know, how are your symptoms? And the 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 group that went zero fiber had complete resolution of all their lower GI complaints, just incredible. But but we, we keep teaching that that fiber is so critical. You know, we, we, we say fiber is so critical for for uh, passage of stools. Well, well, why? You're just creating more material to be passed. Um, I, when I eat strict carnivore, I'm just fine. I, I, I pass stools regularly, not an issue. Um we we say that uh you know fiber is critical for diverticulosis, never been proven. Uh it doesn't decrease um diverticulosis. Uh and uh you know, so so the, the story on fiber uh is is really not based on any quality science. Uh, but yeah, th- those are the big nutrients that that keep getting brought up as issues with carnivore.
0: The, the other big one on red meat is um, colon issues, colon mm-hmm. cancer, intestinal uh, issues, in that it, because uh, coming back to the fiber, because there's no fiber, mm-hmm. there's nothing to push it through. So it sits in the same space and putrefies. Yeah. Um, and I guess that the, they're saying that the fat uh, ferments in a way that creates purine and different types of poisons, and that's what they're thinking might increase the risk of colon cancer. Can you address that? yeah i I don't think that's accurate. you know the whole fermentation in the gut
1: and poor motility that's garbage. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Um, things are always moving uh, you know the, the your your gut is the gut is considered the third nervous system, behind central and peripheral. Then you have the gut. It is so intricately controlled; it's not going to let anything just sit stagnant in there, uh, unless you've damaged it with diabetes, you know, causing a, a gastroparesis, which is basically paralysis of the gut. So I, I don't, I don't buy that argument. Um, there, there are several studies looking at um, fiber supplementation and fruits, uh, grains, whatever. Um, as far as its effect on polyps and, and even, you know, they, they did a few for a couple of, you know, three, four years, whatever it was. And, 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 and they showed no benefit, uh, in fiber or fruit in reducing polyps. And then they're like, oh, well, maybe it wasn't done long enough. So then they do a study for eight years, uh, same deal. They couldn't find any difference. Um, you know, these are, and these are published in the New England journal, uh, you know, big, big peer reviewed journal, um, and so, you know there, there, we have a research showing that that uh, fiber doesn't reduce polyps. Um, you know, uh, some of the um, you know there's a, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to interpret research as we were talking about. Um, a lot of these these correlational studies, uh, and uh, we, we just haven't demonstrated that that fiber makes a big difference. But you know we need to focus on the, the things that do. You know what about what about smoking that that increases polyps? Obesity that increases polyps? Alcohol that increases polyps? Insulin resistance, you know, uh, visceral fat, etc. All of those things are are contributing to polyps and cancer, colon cancers. Um, why why are we so fixated on on fiber? Uh, how about we address the insulin resistance that? that affects 93% of the country who are identified as having poor cardiometabolic health. Uh, that's where we should be focusing our efforts. You know, c- looking at fiber, that's that's just not, uh, that's, it's not the way to look, not the place to look.
0: Heather from Columbus, Indiana writes in and says, I have a three-part question. I'm wondering how long it takes to transition over specifically our digestion. So that's one, I guess she's looking to adapt number two, how to convince others that not eliminating daily is just fine. And number three, what amount of daily water is the target? Mm. I I should have given those two one at a time. But... Oh, that's
1: okay.
0: All right. Uh, first one, uh, how
1: long to transition, especially in terms of digestion, uh, quite variable. You know, a lot of people when they make a transition from the the standard American diet or whatever into a carnivore diet, they'll experience diarrhea, and it has to do with the the, the microbiome and your, your gut bugs uh, getting used to the the change in nutrients. So they're you're not giving them the usual food source, the, the starches, the sugars, etc. So they, they, there's a little catch up time. Uh, you know, that typically a, a couple few weeks. Hard hard to know exactly. I think that there's a lot of individual variation there. You know, when I did my when I, when I launched into carnivore, I, I did a 30-day strict beef and water uh, only uh, diet, um, uh, beef, salt, and water. <laughs> um, that was all I ate for, for 30 days uh, and, and felt amazing. Um, and, when, and I had already been eating a, a very low-carb ketogenic diet uh, prior to that. And so I did not experience the diarrhea that is so common. Uh, for people who, who, who'd launch into the carnivore diet from other diets. What happened to me though, is I went my first seven days, zero stool, nothing at all. And and that's because the, I was eating quality meat, quality nutrition. It was all being absorbed. You know, my body savored every bit of that, that beef, uh, it, it, things weren't going to waste like they do with the high fiber diet. So there's nothing to pass. Well, then after seven days, I had stools. And you know, for, at first it was like every other day and then, or every th- two to three days, whatever it was. And then now it's kind of just settled up to so like daily or it's every one to two days. Um, and, and basically what you're getting then is uh, sloughage of the intestinal cells, which occurs all the time. And so, so it's not actual food material. It's really just uh, the the lining of the intestine that's being continually uh, refreshed, sloughed and replaced. So that's that's where that comes from. Um, But I I adapted pretty quick. Uh, But again, I I had a little head start with the very low-carb diet. The second question, uh, how do do you appease others about not having the daily stools? Um, who, Who said a daily stool is necessary? Who said it's healthy? Uh, again, it depends what you're eating. I mean, I don't I don't think it makes sense to put a whole bunch of bulk in your intestine just to have a stool. Uh, and if you if you look at I, I kind of go through this this thought experiment of if you were to identify if you were to create the absolute perfect food uh, or you know the per- perfect nutritional situation, um, would you really include waste as as part of that? I mean, what, why do you want, why do you want waste? It's, um, I don't know. It seems like taking the time to, to, to take a dump, uh, puts you at risk <laughs> in a primitive setting.
0: You right. Stop. Yeah, evolutionarily you're in a vulnerable
1: <laughs> yeah, position. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Stop and squat. Uh, no, you're better off if you just absorb your entire meal and you keep moving. Uh, I don't know. Get back um, in the tree. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so I, I, I don't see a problem with it. I, I, I think that's a, a human convention, a modern convention of, oh, it's healthy to have a stool every day. I, I, don't, I don't buy it. And then uh, how much water to drink daily? I don't think there's a set amount. I, I think that's, you know, the whole eight cups a day uh, is just really arbitrary. I think the best measure is to take a look at the color of your urine. Is it, is it mostly clear or is it, is it prominently yellow? If it's yellow, drink more. I think that's, that's the best rule of thumb because there's so many factors uh you know insensible losses the you know the sweating and and metabolism and, and you know there's you're just not aware of all the all the ways that you lose um water from your body uh, even breathing a lot of fluid comes out the humidity of your breath so so you you just can't it's it's too hard to to set up a a rule of thumb so, so just keep keep an eye on your
0: on the color of your urine bottom line thank you for that question heather hey when you did your beef salt and water only for a month and you were hyper strict first it really came through the way you said i feel great like i could hear that in your voice right that's what you always hear from people like you just hear the emotion and the passion more than anything because like it's such a good feeling to feel good in your body and for like for everything to be working you're grateful like that's what when I do have those feelings, that's my gratitude really, really comes forward. Um, How much weight did you lose and what percentage of the weight was fat versus lean body mass?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't have a a good way to monitor that now. Uh, I I now have a a body composition scale in my office. I wish I had that back then. Uh, I had already been very low carb and like I said, ketogenic for a while, uh, so I had already lost the the excess weight. Um, not that I didn't have any more to lose, uh, but it wasn't a dramatic weight loss. Um, I, I probably I probably you know, over the thirty days, I probably lost another, I don't know, eight to ten pounds. Let's
0: say. Are you ectomorph, endomorph, or mesomorph? Um, let's see. you look like a big dude you look like you probably you're an easy gainer and i mean that in in terms of both of just size in general i don't mean fat i mean you just look like a big you're you're good northwesterner you know or or actually you're minnesota (laughs) you're a viking you're a viking yeah yeah there you
1: go yeah i think that's fair i i I am i'm able to put on uh weight pretty easily
0: yeah and uh, sorry for the personal question but that you know i think that's it's important in trying to decipher what different people are going to go through when they go on the carnivore, especially if they go strict. Uh, and when here's another question. Jordan Peterson went from two twelve to one sixty two. He's six foot two. When does the slide stop? Because one sixty two in my mind, if he goes to one fifty two, that's not going to uh-huh. look good at six two and And no, and I know we're talking this is superficial and it's ego based, but it's still a, it's still a factor. Yeah. I
1: think it comes down to the fat intake again is, is that's, that's your energy source. So that's going to dictate, dictate what happens. You know, um, are you familiar with Ted Damon? Sounds really familiar. Yeah. So he he was the Scottish guy
0: who was 600 pounds. No, no, no.
1: no, Ted Damon's a physician out here. um, uh, Not too far from me, actually. Uh, he wrote a book about uh, the PE diet, uh, the sorry, diet? PE ratio, the protein energy ratio. And and basically he simplifies it down to, Hey, there's protein. You need your protein and the rest is just energy, mm. fat, carbs. It's all just energy. And again, there's, there's a difference in density, nutritional density and nutrients. Uh, but, but you get what you need from the protein and the rest is just energy. Wow. And so yeah, and so he, he pushes this. Uh, it, it ultimately becomes a low fat, uh, high fiber, yeah, uh, a moderate protein diet, essentially. Um, but I, I like, I, I love the concept for the for for defining, like, fat is an energy source, carbs are an energy source uh it just simplifies that that notion so it's just it helps you think
0: yeah yeah so i I really appreciate that perspective yeah Uh, like i enjoyed that too that that's helpful yeah what's his name again ted naiman n-a-i-m-a-n and what's the book
1: Uh, the p-e diet the p-e diet okay in case people are curious p colon e so the PE ratio.
0: Here's another um another thing to think about. Um, the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um uh, aren't you supposed to eat a bunch of starch and inulin and fiber to feed the good guys? And don't you want good guys in your gut? Yeah, right. Oh um, my um- <laughs> I thought these were all givens and and the way you reacted to that is just sort of like, wow, I am so, my zip code is just wrong on this. I can't. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so first off, let's, let's call it what it is. Uh, the, the microbiome is a big black box.
1: We do not, we're not even close to understanding it. We know there's a lot of really important aspects to it. You know, I, you've heard, you may have heard of these studies, um, they transplant a, a stool from a schizophrenic a human into right. a into a normal mouse, and it starts developing schizophrenic behaviors. Wild. They, they transplant stool from an obese mouse into a normal, healthy mouse the or, or rats, whatever it was, rodent becomes obese. There's something there, obviously. the The, the microbiome matters, um, but we don't fully understand it. You know, and, and there's there's some research. Uh, that helps us with it. One of the things uh, I came across is that there's a study that showed that going from a um, high-carb diet to a carnivore diet does not decrease the, um, the alpha diversity um, of the uh, microbiome, which is basically the variety of species. So they're still there. The same species are there, just in different concentrations. So you so, you downregulate. So, when you cut out the carbs, you downregulate the carb burners and you upregulate the, the protein burners, the fat burners, et cetera, um, the metabolizers, however you say it. Um, and so, 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 we don't actually know, I mean, we don't actually have any evidence that going carnivore um, reduces the diversity of your microbiome. Uh, You know, there's, there's certain bacterial, bacteria families that are um, present in uh, obesity, like the, the firmicutes uh, relative to bacteroides um, in, uh, in, in healthier, uh, normal weight individuals, Um, just an association. uh, But, but there is, there is some importance of the, uh, the, the species and so on. Uh, You know, the, People act like like cutting out fiber is going to starve all your bugs, but we just haven't seen proof of that. It just doesn't seem to be the case.
0: So the diversity is still there. It's just the concentration, just the numbers. So they could theoretically, if someone freaked out, they could just go back and then revitalize them. They're still there. They could just repopulate them.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks for throwing in uh, Revitalize. That's the name of my... Again?
0: <laughs> oh, again? my my
1: uh, my clinic is revitalized metabolic. Oh, revitalized!
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, I should have said that a long time ago, um, <laughs> so people could track you as we're talking. For people who want to get in touch with you, um, what would be the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, uh, so I'm on the web,
0: revitalizedmetabolichealth.com dot
1: also on
0: uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, etc. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, all right, getting close to yeah, wrapping so, here. I want to oh, sure. oh, ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say
1: also with the microbiome, you know, a, a change in the gut bugs is not necessarily bad. We just do, we don't know. We don't we don't know what normal is. We don't we don't have a manual for our bodies, right? We're we're just guessing. It's it's just our understanding of the way things are. But um, we we just we can't say it's not normal. We don't know.
0: Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's interesting when you were going over your that study that was really powerful for me because I'm kind of one of these guys who if I hear two sides both making a case I'll usually grab a little bit from each one of them and Mm -hmm. try to grab the positives from both and then mix it and and create a hybrid as a way of hedging and as a way of hopefully grabbing the best of both worlds but I think you answered my with that study that answer's some question, a line of questioning that I was going to make around mixing. So I like one of the big meals I do is fish or beef, and then I'll mix in some homemade sauerkraut and mm. some seeds and nuts, um, beans. Cause I'm saying, okay, well, let's put all the different proteins in there. Let's put in something that will help it digest. I'll do enzymes. And now I'm, I'm creating insurance policies with redundancies. However, that doesn't factor in for, the uh new nut- you know uh, negative nutrients uh you know like oxalates and phytates and lectins and um the plant's defense mechanisms right uh are you are you are, do you agree that uh fermenting vegetables in a way kills the negatives and maybe increases some of the good guys or in and along those lines pressure cooking i heard is very good for Killing the negative nu- nutrient negatives. If if you still love eating beans mm-hmm. and where do you fall down on all that? Yeah, I I love
1: sauerkraut. Um, I I take a I take a a bite of it every day every day usually usually with every meal. Um, because yeah, you know the probiotics and so on uh, I think are very valuable. Um, not as good from uh, pickled vegetables because the vinegar tends to kill off a lot of the bugs, but uh, for fermentation is is. Uh, fermented vegetables are are really good
0: uh, i'm glad actually. to hear that because it just on you know on the on the surface of it it just looks like very obvious right where you're getting all the positives the negatives have been um metabolized if you will right by the, the good mm-hmm. buggies and um and now they're just giving you giving you good stuff that you know is nutrient nutrient dense right which which is why i'll, ne- I'll never reach 100 percent carnivore
1: because I'll always include a little bit of a sauerkraut, a bit of the ferments.
0: <laughs> oh, you know that goes to the long-lived cultures too. Because when you look at, you know, so the blue zones, mm-hmm. um, they they seem to be. Um, as a matter of fact, our our uh, the person who wrote in from of Lakes. Okay, this this speaks directly to that long-lived cultures. So certain cultures and geographic regions seem to be well known as far as long lifespans. For example, the Okinawans and the Mediterranean cultures and areas. Those diets seem to be primarily comprised of balanced diets of meats, seafoods, um, good fats, olive oil fats, certain kinds of carbs, fresh fruits and veggies. Are there other cultures and geographic regions where an all-animal protein diet has historically proven consistently to result in similar long lifespans as the blue zones? You know,
1: one of the criticisms of this whole blue zone thing is um, there's a lot more going on than just the diet. You know, these are these are um, you know socially integrated cultures. They have other healthy behaviors as well. So socialization. Uh, they're not smokers. Uh, there's there's a lot of other things going on with that. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really not up on the longevity data for other uh, for, for other cultures. Um so so I, I can't really speak to that.
0: Understandable. Understood. Yeah, I don't know. It's very, very curious that some of the Okinawan women and, you know, consistently in their late 90s and they're doing rice and fish. Uh-huh. Um, maybe there's some synergy to the rice. You know, I like putting a little white rice in my food because it's neutral, right? It doesn't have the, the mm-hmm. negatives. Um, and frankly, it helps with my stool. It helps yeah. with my... It gives me a nice little goose in the gym, um, yeah. a little bit of cheating. I know, but I, I've never, I've never fully adapted. So I'm not a reliable, I, I get to the 48 hour mark and the weight loss freaks me out. It's a psychological thing. There's nothing you can address with me, doctor, because I, it's a psychological thing. I start not liking what I look like when I lose 10 and you lose the weight, man. Man, if yeah. I was two thirty yeah. and I was metabolically dysregulated I probably am though. I probably am metabolically dysregulated, but I'm just not heavy, so I still sure. need to do this. I do need to do yeah. this. I bet my no, visceral uh, fat's not good. <laughs> yeah. I do, man. It, I do. Yeah, get it All checked right.
1: out. Um, but yeah, I I, I agree that uh, if you're going to incorporate some some carbs, uh, rice is a good way to go. Uh, sweet potatoes. You uh, know, what? And, now and I'm this.
0: surprised you like the sweet potatoes because aren't those isn't that in the category of anti-nutrients or not? Uh,
1: I'm sure. <laughs> am I going to- You're us gonna... some
0: wiggle room. Is that what you're telling me?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And again, I my, I feel good when I eat them, but I don't eat them regularly. It's very rare. But but if I'm going to look for a, a starch, a carb, whatever, it's going to be rice or sweet potatoes. And you, know, you mentioned the, the Okinawans eating rice and so on. Um, and and you know what stands out about these carb sources is they're not processed. You you cut out these processed foods, uh, go ahead and eat carbs. You're fine. It's it's really it's driven by so many other uh, ingredients in those processed foods: the seed oils, the refined grains, the the sugar. Uh, that's probably driving insulin resistance
0: way more than the carbohydrate source itself. <clears throat> We're running out of time. I want to give you a, a, another opportunity to tell people where they can get a hold of you. And I want to ask you if you'd be so kind as to come back on a future date because we didn't get to uh, constant <laughs> glucose monitors. We didn't get to coronary artery calcium. We didn't get to HDL, LDL, vitamin K2. There's so much we need to get to, but absolutely, uh, it's just so it's, there's so much here. And you're fascinating. I really, really appreciate the amount of work you've done to swim upstream, man. You're one of the heroes. You're the guys. You know, you were talking about this when we opened up the show, how grateful people are because they weren't being given these options. And to know you don't have to spend how expensive insulin is and you don't have to do needles anymore and all that. Just the fact that you're doing that and the fact that they fought you on And they fight all doctors on giving this sensible, scientifically proven, scientifically efficacious information. It's, it's a crime. It's a real crime. And I want to thank you for it must not have been comfortable at times. And just the extra work you did for no more money. Like, you know, no one's paying you to do all this extra work and go into the library and learn all about this and to save lives. No one's paying you for it um so it's a kindness and it's appreciated and you know i i speak hopefully for we'll get this out into a couple thousand people's homes and they'll be you know checking this out um and so thank you for for your swimming upstream bro
1: yeah i appreciate that thank you very much and i'd love to to meet with you again to another conversation that'd be great
0: good let's do that i'm going to hold you to that maybe in about like um two or three months we'll circle back okay Sounds thank good. you, doctor. One more time. Oh, where one more time. Where can where can people uh, oh, I yeah. know you, you also write for a website as well,
1: right? You know, I, I used to write uh, semi regularly for diet doctor. Uh, I, I kind of let that slide because I'm focused now on my own business. And so all my efforts go into that now. So I'm, uh, I'm the physician that, behind revitalize metabolic health. I'm in uh, Gig Harbor, Washington. And uh, so, do you so,
0: do um, remote? Uh, do. consultation okay yes sir yeah
1: yeah uh the i mean you know full disclosure uh being across working across state lines has limitations so i can't do you know ordering labs medications making diagnoses etc um but uh but i can do coaching health coaching essentially across state lines outstanding um, just have to toe the line there
0: yeah oh no, uh, i know i get you I guess. Yeah. So, so,
1: so revitalize metabolic com is my website. I have a blog up there with lots of uh, um, articles. I write, you know, weekly contributions there. Um, I do have a, uh, a mailing, a weekly mailing list, a newsletter as well. You can, you can find that on my
0: Facebook or, or Instagram. There's links to that. Um, Excellent. Yeah. And I'll and, put some links in the show notes as well. Sure. Yeah. He's Dr. Christopher Stather. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Thank you, George. Talk again soon, Doc. For our full schedule of fights on the NBC Sports Network, CW, and ABC affiliates, visit unitedfightalliance.com. United Fight Alliance. United, we fight.